emotional courage is the intangible and authentic traits we all develop on our own time, at our own pace, to confront adversity with the intellectual capital and strength it requires. This is certainly true of Sue Bowles. As a childhood rape survivor, twice suicidal, having to recover from depression and an eating disorder, Sue's story of struggle, perseverance, and hope is sure to resonate with any audience. She's an award-winning author, speaker, and master certified professional coach, and she also leads an organization entitled My Step Ahead, which is committed to breaking down the stigma surrounding mental health struggles. Bowles joined me this week to have a conversation about mental health, overcoming adversity, in order to triumph. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. So, Sue, if you're ready, I'll welcome you to the program, and I'm excited to learn all about your live story. Great to see you this afternoon, and thank you so very much for being here. All right, thanks for having me, Kevin. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Sue, uh, doing some research on you, I know you have an interesting uh, story to uh, share with me this afternoon. I know that you're a survivor turned uh, master coach, and you now help people sort of realize that there is hope or a light at the end of the a rainbow. So I'm wondering if you could tell me all about your, your life story and more you, uh, how you got to where you are today. Sure, I'd be happy to. I do want to give a quick trigger warning. A couple of things I'm going to share real quick have to do with eating disorders, have to do with sexual assault. So if anything like that is triggering for any of your listeners, I really want them to be aware of that so they can have a self-care plan ready. And that includes if you need to shut the show off and come back to it later when you're ready, we'll be sitting here waiting for you. So that's no problem at all. So having said that, um, you know, my, my, my first big life-turning, life-changing event happened when I was seven. And a classmate of mine in first grade enticed me into the woods on the school property after school one day and proceeded to rape me and actually raped me a couple of times. He held me against my will for 45 minutes. The last words Bobby said to me were, don't tell anybody. And I didn't realize how captive those words were going to hold me because it ended up being a 15 year secret. And I, I didn't even end up dealing with it really until about seven years ago. So 40 plus years, so four, over four decades since the event until I really started finding healing from that. Before we get to that part, in addition to the rape, I was raised in a dysfunctional home. Um, my dad is 31 years sober now, but you know, when you have alcohol as part of the, part of the environment, you know, some things happen in terms of just, just, you know, just not, not the best environment. You know, my, my parents did the best they could. 
all the relationships are restored. They are better than, they, than they've ever been. But that was part of my story back at that point in time. Um, my folks divorced after 31 years of marriage. So that was one of the points in time when I was suicidal. The other time I was suicidal was my junior year of high school when I was just convinced that nobody cared. So I had all that going on. Then I get to college and I develop an eating disorder because an eating disorder really has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with the emotions that haven't not been dealt with correctly. So I had all that, you know, and then there was other high school, you know, um, sexual assault, sexual abuse in high school from other, other boys as well and a neighborhood kid. So there was just a lot stacked on me. And any one of those things is a lot for someone to deal with. And I had all of that come my way. Now I'm a Christian and, and I, I will say that I was hacked off at God for a really long time. I didn't understand why he let all that happen in my life. And as I have walked my healing journey, those, those events now allow me to relate to a wide range of people so that I can encourage them in their journeys. So even though the events themselves sucked and uh, you know, were heart-wrenching and life-changing, they no longer define me. I went through a long period of time where I let those events define me. I was raped. I was raised in a dysfunctional home, you know, all this other stuff. And, and that was my identity. And it wasn't until I dared to believe that I mattered that I started doing the hard work of healing. I, I got connected with a counselor. I'm still with her now. We've been with together actually 13 and a half years. And for the first four or five or six years, she said we had to get me stronger in the present before we could even deal with the past. So in 2014, we finally got to the point where we could deal with the rape. That was gut-wrenching and, and not for the faint of heart. A couple of years later, and, and, and I'm, I'm giving a real thumbnail sketch here, um, but you know, when you're dealing with a sexual assault 40 plus years after it happened, and then you have everything else on top of it, there is a lot of digging that needs to happen before you can really get to the root issues. One of the things I say is that uh, when I was seven and Bobby raped me, my emotions became frozen in time. So if you can imagine happy-go-lucky seven-year-old, loves to play, have fun, enjoy school, and that's a very key developmental time in any person's life. And then my brain got rewired because of the trauma. So I didn't have a chance to be a normal child because all I knew was to protect myself. So I did that by shutting down my emotions. That is ultimately what led to my, my eating disorder. By the time I got to college, my brain was not processing things correctly because again, in scientifically proven, you can find some of it on the internet. Trauma will rewire your brain and how your brain processes things because your brain is stuck in fight or flight mode. And it's, but it is reversible, it is treatable, it is, there's hope. Because through the hard work of healing, you can then retrain your brain. I'm still doing that with some things right now. It is not easy work, but I can tell you it's so worth it. So as I walked my healing journey, um, a few years ago, a friend of mine who was part of that healing journey encouraged me to look into becoming a life coach. And at first I had a really bad attitude about life coaching because I didn't understand what it was. And I did a lot of research. 
I found a school that I really believed in that is globally accredited and, and uh, very, very supportive of their alums. And I am now a master certified life coach through Certified Life Coach Institute. I've been coaching for a couple of years now and, and it is my greatest joy to be able to be for others what others were for me. And that's a voice of hope to walk with somebody in whatever they're going through. Now, it might be maybe they're going through a career change and they don't have anybody to work it through with. Maybe they're dealing with some relationship issues or some financial goals or a lot of social anxiety right now around COVID or time management. It could be any kind of life skill that someone's struggling with or trying to, trying to get better on. I coach people who want something better for themselves and aren't going to settle until they get it. I get to come along in that journey and help them find what they're looking for. Yeah, well, first and foremost, I want to uh, congratulate you on coming up the other side of that uh, journey that you went on in life. And I'm sure that our, you're still going through. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I live my life by is the notion that we all have a, a small part to play in making sure that other people maximize their fullest level of potential. So first and foremost, I want to say a congratulations and thank you for the work that you do uh, to help people heal. That's most appreciated. Well, I appreciate that. And it's what, what, I, what I relish most about the job, about being a life coach, is that you know, when someone comes to me for coaching, they're, 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 they're tired of being stuck. They don't, want what, they don't want what they have anymore. They want something. They may not know what that something is yet, but when they call me and say, hey, I, I, I want some coaching, let's talk about this. That's telling me that they still have some hope and they're clinging to that hope and they wanna see that fan into flame. And that's what I get to do. I am a hope coach. That's what I get to do is help where people feel like, I don't know how much, you know, what I can see change here, but I'm willing to give it a try. That's what I get to help. And it's, it's, it's fun to watch the smiles on their face as the confidence grows, as they start embarking and getting where they thought they could never get. It's fabulous work, isn't it? It is. And, and, and you talk about how we all play a part. My company name is called My Step Ahead. And, and the, the, the concept behind that is that you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. It speaks directly to what you were just saying. I, I'm still reaching out for help to my counselor to continue to deal with things, to continue to get better. We lost, we lost my mom 15 months ago, so we're still dealing with some, some residual effects of the grief and all the questions and the doubts and the concerns that come from that of what's my new identity now that I'm not a caregiver and all those things. So while I'm still reaching out for help to Amanda, I'm still able to reach back to others who might be a step or two behind me and I can help them with the knowledge that I have. I can help them with what I've gone through, take their next step while I'm still reaching out to take my next step as well. And together we have a whole human chain of support. That's what it's about. It is helping each other take their next step ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, uh, just a little bit about myself, you know, I was born with what's called basic uh, quadriplegic cerebral palsy, simply means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And one of the models that I live my life by is yes, I have a disability, but it doesn't define the way I live my life. And one of right. the uh, tenets that I live my life by is that inclusion is the gateway to independence. 
So one, mm-hmm. of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about is how do you define empowerment and taking control of your own life journey? That is a great question. How do I define empowerment and taking control of your life? I think the first thing, <coughs> excuse me, I'm still getting over a little bit of the cold. I think the first thing is to, you know, first of all, believe in yourself. And, and I don't say that in, in just a real, you know, off the cuff way, because for a long time, I didn't believe in myself. We need to surround ourselves and it might start with just one person. It might like be a life coach or anybody else who believes that there is more in you, even if you don't see it. And when, as we, as we continue to hear that, as other people speak that into ourselves, we start to believe. I said earlier that it was when I dared to believe that I mattered. That's when things started to change for me. I had a number of people telling me that and showing me that without words for a few years. And each situation built on the next to the point that it finally started, started, started making sense to me. And when I, instead of, 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 of holding on to that doubt that my brain was telling me, because that's all my brain knew, was that no, no one's trustworthy, so I'm not worthy of time. Instead of holding on to that, I dared to believe that what they said was true. And I dared to believe I mattered. So to talk about empowerment and, and, and um, you know, getting where you want to get, I think it starts with a mindset. It starts with, you know, like I said, daring to believe that you matter. And, and the, it's depending on what, you know, what the, the past is, what the history is. Those are hard things to tell yourself. And that's why it's important to reach out for that support, that help. So that little by little, that's one of the reasons, you know, I'm a life coach is because we get to take whatever that first step is and help them work. I I have clients who um, had a lot of social anxiety, were afraid of going out of their apartment, you know, just, you know, during COVID and everything. And because of COVID, then they got very socially anxious. And we started working with what they felt comfortable doing. And then we started developing from there. Now this person we were talking last night wants to do a career change. So we're talking about that. They want to be a, a leader in their church. So, you know, so to see those things. So empowerment starts with that mindset. It starts with daring to believe and surrounding yourself with others who will cheer you until you're able to cheer yourself. Yeah, one of, one of the, one of the uh, follow-ups I have to that, of course, is the the, the impact of mental health. I know that uh, your organization helps people get through uh, mental health struggles, among other things. So I'm also curious to ask you to dive a little bit deeper into one step ahead or my step ahead. And uh, tell me about the importance of valuing your mental health and making sure that you have the resources to adequately and uh, severely um, uh, address that because I do think it's important because our mental stability is just as important as, as our physical health. I'm sure you would agree with that. Oh, most definitely. Nothing happens without some kind of mental health. Because, and, and what I mean by that is that think of a time when your brain is just telling you things you don't, you know, that aren't aren't encouraging to you, aren't helping you. You made a mistake at work. I'm such a screw up. Everybody hates me. My boss is going to fire me. You know, it's not 
hard for the brain just to go down that slippery slope. We have to be able to stop that. We need to be able to see it for what it is. We need to be able to have the skills to reverse that and to have something to counteract it. Otherwise, think of a, a fulcrum. If all you're doing is giving yourself more negative stuff, more negative, negative, you know, the scale is going get, to get very out of balance. And we have to, so when, when we start, our, it's called self-talk. When our self-talk really starts taking us down the tubes, we have to have the skills to be able to balance things out a little bit. Of instead, I'm a screw up, I made a mistake and everyone's gonna hate me and fire me. It's okay, I goofed up and I, I'm, I'm adult enough to own it. And here's how I'm going to solve the problem so it doesn't happen again. And life moves on. What we tell ourselves directly affects our mental health because we are we're talking to ourselves and the thing is we're listening to ourselves others may not listen to us when we speak but we listen to ourselves the problem is that the things we tell ourselves are very negative we all have very unrealistic expectations of ourselves that that's just how we're wired we understand that but how we deal with those you you can it's great to have expectations of yourself and to set the goals and, and to take those steps to see those goals happen. But if you're expecting yourself to be perfect, you're gonna set yourself up for a fall in no time at all. And then it's gonna matter. And then what do you tell yourself as soon as that falls? I'm such a screw up, I can't do anything right. And the more we believe what we tell ourselves, that affects our mental health. That has a direct effect on stress, anxiety, sleep, eating, wellness in general, and, and over time, you depression. All those things, because a number, a, a number of mental illnesses, depression, for example, eating disorders, have to do with a do with with it, it's it's literally in the brain. It has to do with a chemical imbalance in the brain, and that is is you know the chemicals in our brain. I believe it's serotonin. I believe it is um, uh, cortisol. Is the, is the stress hormone, and when our stress is higher, our cortisol increases. We saw that when my mom passed, my, my blood work went skyrocketing through on cholesterol much more than it had been to the point my doctor put me on meds for three months to get it back under control. Now, I didn't, I'm, I'm off it now. It was, it was situational, but it was because the cortisol, the, the stress hormone was kicking things and my cholesterol went sky high and therefore high cholesterol can affect blood pressure, can affect how your brain is processing things. It is all tied together. I don't think people fully understand the critical nature mental health plays in everything else in your relationships. If you are not mentally healthy and how you interact with your own self, how will you be able to have a sustainable, healthy relationship with somebody else? If you haven't learned to communicate with yourself, how are you going to communicate with others? All those things come into play. And I don't think people realize the, the, the overriding influence it has. Most of the stuff I coach on has to do with relationships, has to do with anxiety, has to do with courage, self-talk, goals, financial concerns, and financial goals. And somewhere along the line, it comes back to what are you telling yourself? Yeah, to that point, you know, Stu, one of, the tenets that I, I believe is important is embracing uh, imperfections because I believe if you do that, you're one step closer to uh, uh, achieving prosperity. So I, and I know that you uh, are big on uh, going along on the journey of hope 
uh, for the people that you work with. So I'm curious about your uh, your thoughts on embracing your imperfections and the positive outcome that can have on uh, discovering your journey of hope. On embracing my what again? Embracing your imperfections and how that can be uh, <coughs> positive when it comes to right. embracing hope. Oh, yeah. Um, that was the first step. I grew, again, going back to first grade, when I left the woods and my mom was looking for me, I didn't know what to tell anybody. I didn't have the words and no one knew to ask anything because back in the 70s, rape was not on, this, on the radar. It wasn't talked about, it wasn't expected. No one knew to ask anything. So no one did anything wrong by not asking. No one knew better and I didn't know. But over the course of time, because I said, you know, as I said, my emotions were frozen in time. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to express what I was feeling because I didn't know what I was feeling. So I put on a mask because I felt like everybody's expectation of Sue and notice that big umbrella statement, everybody in quotes, that their expectation of Sue was that Sue had no problems because that's the picture I painted because I didn't want to be found out. So I, yes, I was very imperfect. And, but I tried to cover it up by making myself look good in the eyes of others. Because again, I didn't have the confidence to reach out. I didn't know how to reach out. I didn't know how to express what I was feeling. So it came out in all kinds of other ways. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And my body was keeping score in a lot of ways of all the trauma and the stress and everything else. And it wasn't until I went on a retreat in 2014 called, and it's now called the Walking Stick Retreats. And we talked about the masks that we wear and, and being, being authentic. And I, I went to my counselor six weeks in advance of this retreat. I said, just get me ready. I just want to be authentic. And we, we worked all through my fears. And that, that retreat was the first place where I dared to believe I was lovable. But I had to take off the masks. In a college, I wore the mask that Sue had it all together. That's where the eating disorder started. Because I, I painted the picture, I had it all together. I did three major campus events, coordinated them all in my senior year of college. It was insane. And what, what I ended up doing, I, 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 I was over-involved in student activities. And as I look back at it now, I understand that, that the way it was working in my brain was that I didn't feel like I had value. So if I was seen, I had value. And I was seen because I was very involved in campus activities. Activity became my number as I was dealing with my eating, as I was in my eating disorder. Because if I stayed busy, I didn't have to think. And if I didn't have to think, I didn't have to feel. And if I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to deal with my stuff. So all of that came into play. I was highly imperfect and I was trying to hide it. And it was all, literally almost killing me. And it wasn't until I finally said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I am broken. I'm a mess and I need somebody to help me. And I started surrounding myself with people who believed in me, everything I was talking about before, people who believed in me, people who spoke good things to me to start counteracting all the negative that I've been told for 40 plus years. And so I know that uh, you have also 
dabbled into becoming a best-selling author. So congratulations. <laughs> it's not best-selling, but it is award-winning. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I want to know about the book and the uh, message behind it. Sure. Um, let me show you. This is this book here. I always have one with me. It's called This Much I Know, The Space Between. It came out in September 2019 and won second place nonfiction in November 2020. So I, I was very encouraged. It is self-published as my first book. So it was very encouraging to have that recognition. The, the book is my story. I started writing it as I started to heal. And it took a little bit of a different shape as I continued to heal. The book took a different shape. And the concept is that the first half of the book is my story, much more detailed than anything I explained here. And because this much I know, that's every person has a story. That much we know, no one can take our stories from us. It's what we do with our stories that makes the difference. You know, in your bio, you, in the bio, it talks about how the, those things, the events in my life no longer define me. I define them. So my story, I know my story doesn't define me anymore. I define my story. So the second half of the book, The Space Between, talks about the healing journey, talks about everything I had to go through to start getting to where I am now. And, and it started with things like, first, I had to own my story. The first year at the retreat, I had to come face to face with my, sto my story and my trauma because I was in denial about my story. I didn't like my story. I hated it. And I was still trying to wear a mask for myself to hide my imperfection that I was broken and hurting. The second year is I had to grieve my story. My story has a lot of loss in it. More, and I continue to discover more aspects of loss. But I had to give that loss its due regard because it, loss is painful. Loss deserves to be mourned. And once I got through that, then I was then the next step is where I started to believe that I, I was valuable for me, that I'm valuable to God and that I have something to offer. That was when things started to change. So the book talks about my story in much more detail and then talks about that healing journey in much more detail as well. Oh. And it's the first it's the first part in the series. It's actually going to be a three part series. So I am working on book number two right now. Well, congratulations on starting that journey. I want to make sure that uh, we give people uh, the way to get the book at the end of our conversation. But I sure. know uh, for you that uh, bringing attention to eating disorders is important. And I know that uh, National uh, Eating Disorder Week is coming up in February. And I know that it's an it's a issue that has sort of come back up to the uh, forefront during the pandemic. So tell me about the importance of uh, bringing attention to eating disorders and how do you think people can uh, begin to get uh, assist assistance with uh, uh, that part of their life if they need assistance? Sure, and I appreciate the time to do that. Um, eating disorders are very misunderstood. First of all, eating disorders are the second most lethal mental health, mental health issue. They used to be the most lethal. They are second only to opioid addiction and opioid, opioid, opioid overdose now. And people don't realize that. People have a lot of stereotypes around, around eating disorders. They think you're either super skinny or skin and bones or you're severely overweight or you can't stop eating. 
And that is far from the truth. If you're watching this video, you probably did not think I have an eating disorder. I am in recovery from an eating disorder. It is not one of the big three. It is called OSFED, stands for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. What that means is that I don't meet the diagnostic criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or, or, binge, or, or, or binge eating, but it means that I have disordered eating. I did not start working with a dietitian and go into recovery from my eating disorder until 2016. That's, and that's how deceptive it can be. I never called it an eating disorder. I called it anorexic tendencies. I called it odd eating behaviors, but I never called it for what it was. Eating disorders are, I'm very passionate about educating people about them because men and women, boys and girls have eating disorders. I believe the stat is one out of three people struggle with an eating disorder. Someone in your listening audience is struggling with an eating disorder. That's just the way it works. They are the most lethal, not only because of the suicide that goes along with it, because again, we talked earlier about mental health and, and the importance of that. And I talked about what we tell ourselves. When you are not feeding your brain the nutrients it needs, it is fighting against itself even more. And I'm going to go on a short soapbox here. Carbs are the only thing that give your brain energy. Why would we deny our bodies what is designed to need? Fats are the only thing that protect your inner organs and give you the sensation of being full. And protein is the only thing that will rebuild your muscle mass and your strength. A well-balanced diet with all three of those nutrients in a consistent manner is the key to managing your weight. I'm not saying weight loss. I'm not saying weight gain. I'm saying managing your weight. When I speak, I do not talk about my ranges because those can be triggering for people. What I can tell you is that now that I am in recovery, now that I am eating a balanced meal, I'm not, I'm not three times a day, every day of the week. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, except on the weekends. I still struggle with the weekends. So my dietitian and I continue to work on that. Um, but my body has reached what it called what it's called its, its set weight. Everybody has in its DNA what the ideal weight is for it to be able to support the bone structure and to support your body. And that is different for each person. No one can tell you what your set weight is. If you had told me five years ago, my body would settle where it is, I would have laughed you off the face of the earth because way back when, when I was in my disorder, I did not have favorable comments about where I am right now. I don't even think about it now. Instead, I focus on what do I need to eat to stay balanced? So I'm passionate about eating disorders because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Diets are pre-eating disorder behavior. I, I, I am not supportive of diets because they are based on restriction. And why are we restricting what our body needs? Again, if you eat in proportion, over time, as your body learns to trust yourself, that your body learns to trust you, your, 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 your body weight will, will level out. When I first started in my, in my recovery with my, eating, with my dietitian, I felt bloated. I complained. I'm like, I don't like this. I don't, you know, I feel heavy and all these other things. And she just encouraged me to give it time, give it time. And over time, probably over the next, over the course of a couple months of consistently eating balanced meal, 
that feeling went away. And what she told me was that my body was hoarding things because it didn't know I was going to be trustworthy yet. And once it learned it could trust me and that I was going to listen to what it was telling me of when it needed to eat and that it needed to eat balanced, then my body let go of everything it was holding on to and things settled. People don't understand that because they want the quick fix. Nutrition and balanced eating is not a quick fix. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, uh, you, you brought up the uh, uh, notion of hope earlier and, and coming to that journey uh, at our own time and our own space. So my final question for you has to do with your own a personal and professional legacy and uh, based on the work that you've done and the growth that you've made how do you think you want that to be defined uh, for the rest of your life my website says it best it says i'm a voice of hope i want to be for others what others were for me i want to journey together with people who are looking for something better for themselves and don't know how to go about getting it. Because hope drives everything. If you don't have hope that you're gonna pay off the house, you're not gonna keep paying your mortgage. If you don't have hope that something's going to change, you're not going to seek after something. If you don't have hope that there'd be something better out there, you're not going to look for a new job that might excite you more. If we don't have hope, nothing happens. And when someone reaches out and trusts me with that first step of there's something I think I want to work on, let's talk. That is hope because they have not given up on themselves. That's what I want to be remembered for. That's what what I want my company, my legacy to be is that I believed in others and helped fan their flicker of hope into a burning flame that they used to light their path the rest of the way. Fabulous. And Sue, tell me, how can uh, people get connected with you and uh, uh, buy the book or uh, what's the best way they can do that? Sure. A couple things. The book is on Amazon and Kindle. Um, if you want, you can search for it there. But if you go to suebowls.com, you'll have a link to it there. Also, um, there are a few times a year, I open up more coaching slots. So I'm able to take on a couple, couple more clients right now. So if people go to suebowls.com, they can also sign up for a 15-minute free consultation. We can talk about what it is they want to work for, what, what it is that they want to see get better for their lives and see what the best way is I can help them. So that's the other way they can get in touch. Um, those probably be the two best ways. And then I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I'm on Facebook is Sue Bowles Coaching and Instagram is my step ahead. Fantastic. Well, Sue, I really want to uh, thank you for sharing your story and a bit about the professional work that you do to inspire people to have a little bit of hope in their lives, your time, energy, and work in the space. And on my behalf, I'm most appreciated, and I want to thank you for being here this afternoon. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Kevin.